Welcome to episode 72 of the Ecomosaurus podcast. My name is Tim McDougall. I have with me Parker Harrington, Rachel Thompson, and Shelby Kramer, who uh, is producing the show as well. So episode 72, we're going to be talking about our main topic, our different Amazon fulfillment options. So just catching some common questions we get about fulfillment by Amazon, uh, fulfillment by manufacturer, so FBA versus FBM, and then remote FBA. And some of this is going to be kind of basic 101 material, but it's questions that we commonly get asked from new sellers, and that includes people starting businesses or people that are moving from a wholesale model and trying to sell direct to consumer. So we thought it'd be worthwhile covering. We've gotten asked these questions just recently, in fact. Um, as a reminder, uh, this podcast is sponsored by 50 Pound Boson. 50 Pound Boson is an e-commerce agency that helps small to medium-sized brand owners who are working to grow their e-commerce sales channels. Episodes of the e-commerce come out either Monday or Tuesday every week. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please uh, give us a review, leave a rating, uh, subscribe to the show. Last week, before we get into it, just uh, if you're looking for past episodes, last week, episode 71, we talked about how to recover when one of your popular products is not able to be sold for a while, whether that's due to compliance issues or supply chain problems or something else. And, and what you need to do to recover from that. And that also includes when you had to pause advertising for a bit. Uh, the week before that, we had, we had some fun with our Would You Rather episode, uh, which had a bunch of Would You Rather scenarios for e-commerce and digital marketing. The one we didn't talk about that I still go back to is we had a vote on Would You Rather Spend, uh, would you rather spend a day on the phone with Amazon support or spend a night in jail? And our team voted heavily for a night in jail. I think there was only one dissenter that said they would rather spend a day on the phone with Amazon support. So uh, that's episode seven. If you want to go back and listen to that, we'll probably do that again soon because that was a lot of fun. Before we get into our main topic, though, um, some questions for the team on this, some things that are topical so, and some things that have been, we've been talking around uh, at our offices. One, and I'm going to put this to Rachel and Parker, Slack had a recent television campaign, and it's a big song and dance number. It's very entertaining about why you should use Slack and the values of instant messaging and the value of being productive. But they closed it with saying they, it was uh, on, the, on the version that ran on TV that I saw it was Slack, an AI-powered company. On the version that they've now changed to, it says Slack AI-powered uh, productivity. But our question internally here, uh, and Parker, you go first on this. My reaction was uh, that I think people are just putting AI on everything, whether AI matters or not. And there's Slack is one of the last things I think of as an AI, as a place where AI becomes useful for me. Um, and I love Slack. We use Slack all the time. It's our main form of communication. So to me, it was an example of just more AI washing of people slamming AI on everything, whether it makes sense or not. But Parker, what was your what was your take on this? We we talk about whether people are using AI in a meaningful way or not a lot on this podcast. Yeah, at this point in our careers, we've all been a part of a creative process where person in charge or the director says we have to include this. It kind of feels like that. So it kind of feels tacked on. Rachel, what was your take on it? One of the features that they showed in the commercial was like AI with quotes, notes after a meeting. And I don't hate that idea, but it isn't necessary. It feels tacked on. It feels like, oh yeah, look at us too. We're we're doing this too. 
Yeah. So there's some probably some advanced uses of Slack that we're not taking advantage of because we're not a gigantic company. Um, so there may be some there that we're just missing. To me, it was my daily use of Slack is I type a message to somebody or in a channel and people reply and I read the reply and there's not a lot of AI that comes in. I don't, I've never used Slack and said, man, this would be better if it had AI. That said, maybe we're just missing the boats on their bigger features, but it, it felt our latest example. We could do an example every week of somebody tacking AI on to things where it doesn't have much meaning to what's going on there. But Rachel, your take was there may be, there may be some more advanced things that AI actually helps with on that. In the commercial, they showed a meeting with like 10 people. So if we were having meetings of like 10 people or more regularly over Slack, sure, I would turn that feature on. But I wouldn't be like, oh my God, I can't have this meeting without this feature. We should do that for our weekly wrap-up meeting one week because we have a weekly, our Friday weekly, just do it through Slack and see if Slack can take notes. Deal? Can we test that soon? Sure. We test it today. Give it a go. <laughs> see what happens with it. Great. Uh, other bonus topic here. So uh, we have what's been going out, going before we get into FBA versus FBM. Uh, we have what's being called it by different news sources now, bloody January with layoffs everywhere and a list, a short list of some of the companies laying off lots of people. And these are like, you know, sometimes 12, 15% of the workforce, um, Google, Meta, Microsoft, Etsy, Citigroup, Nike, Discord, Amazon, BlackRock, Intel, Unity Software, eBay, Rent the Runway, which is a big retailer, Salesforce. And there's a lot more on that list. And and this is from Business Insider, and they cited that, hey, 38% of business leaders through the poll they were looking at were saying layoffs are likely at their company this year. 50% say there's going to be a hiring freeze at their company. Um, that's pretty grim. So um, there's also speculation on why, because a lot of underlying metrics for the economy don't look so bad right now. Um, so the reasons being cited, and, and this is a question, there's a multiple choice here. Um, for Parker and Rachel, and then Shelby, if you feel like jumping on the multiple choice too on this. Reason A is recession, fears of recession. And this is being most cited in a lot of the press releases about these. Another reason B is that, well, we're starting to replace people with AI. So AI comes in again. Number Reason number three is not being given by any of the CEOs or official announcements, but is being said by analysts and skeptical observers saying, People just, companies just overhired during the pandemic. These companies overhired and now they're having to make a correction. And reason number four being given is that there's a lot of companies who want to cut costs and get the bonus they get from stockholders by cutting costs and the stock price, but they don't want to be the only one cutting because it's also a black eye in the company whenever you reduce forces. Um, but now that everybody's doing it, now's the time when everybody gangs on and just does it because they don't. You don't get as much of a negative if you do it while everybody else is also making cuts, and then you also get the positive stock bump. And this has happened many, many times in kind of stock market economic history. So, Rachel, what's the real reason why we're having bloody January right now? I'm pretty cynical. I'm going to go with D. The lemmings the, theory. The lemmings. The lemmings theory of. Now that everybody else is making cuts, I can go make my cuts and I don't get criticized as much. Yeah. Parker, what's your take? I'm going to lead with number three on the overhired during the pandemic. Seemed like all the corporations were just fighting for the best talent at the time. And then knowing that they could lay off the ones that weren't in the top percentage after. And I think it's a little bit of all the above, but I'm going to lean that one first. 
that that's kind of I, I think three and four are both I think the real reasons. I don't think they're replacing people with AI yet. Um, so I don't think that's that could be a reason in the future. I don't think that's happening yet. And um, and if it's recession fears, the recession fears were worse at the start of last year. Um, we were much darker feeling about the economy at the start of last year. Um, I think it is overhiring for the pandemic finally coming coming finally kind of coming to bear. And yeah, once one company starts doing big layoffs, that's the cue for everybody else to do their plans on it. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. And, and, and for most analysts, this list isn't done. There's going to be more by the end of the month or in the first quarter coming from this. So, um, you know, wish everybody well who's being affected by this. There's a couple of people I know who have been affected by this. Um, and I hope they land in places soon. This is never pleasant when this is going on, but that's the state of the market right now. Um, the last one we want to bring up is just, and we'll talk about this more on next week's podcast. This next week's podcast is the January e-commerce news update, but there was an announcement uh, two days ago. So it came, this is being recorded on Friday. It came out Wednesday afternoon from Amazon saying they're now going to allow multiple sellers to put images on listings. Um, so, and that calls into question, if you're the brand owner, do you get to control all your own images anymore? Or can the third parties come in and, and jump in on top of that? Um, Parker, what was your reaction on seeing that? Yeah, it's almost like they're doing things backwards. I feel like Walmart's been doing this for a while where they'll say, hey, like we're taking contributions from many sellers and, you know, we might take yours. And I guess I'm okay with the minimum required images to create a better overall experience. But as far as third parties being able to submit, I'm cautiously pessimistic. Yeah, and and the other part that I left out when I set it up was that Amazon always used to say there was one required image and you have to have that, you know, your product on a white background. That's the only required image and the rest are just will help you sell. In this announcement, they snuck in there that there are three required images. The one, the main primary image, product in a white background, but also one that shows the product in environment, otherwise known as a lifestyle shot for most folks, and one that shows the product with dimensions and size, um, and that those are required. And that's not something, and if any of those required ones are missing, any seller who makes those available will get their image up there instead of yours. So... Rachel, you deal with most of these like bad image problems. Image, you deal with most of those on our team. What was your, in your world of 99 problems about Amazon listings? Gearing up for 99 more. 99 more on this then. Uh, I would like to think that there are some exceptions to this, like brand registry, giving you the chance to be the number one contribution regardless of who submits. But that's not the way the press release reads. But also, that release is only like two paragraphs long. So yeah, that release does not even mention brand registry, right? So yeah, I'd like to wait for a little bit more information before I start to get really nervous. But I see a lot of Amazon cases in my future. Yeah, and that's that was the first question from our partners, by the way, on seeing that announcement was, does this mean brand registry doesn't matter, or does brand registry still get priority if somebody else submits an image and we do, and we own brand registry? So that'll be a question to be resolved. Hopefully by next week's podcast, we have some more answers on that, but that'll be one of the topics I'm pretty sure on that. Uh, it used to, because controlling your own listing is a big deal for us. And if this means you lose some control, 
That's a question mark. It also means for new sellers that there's now three images you have to get up, um, which is which matters on this. And a lot of our not new sellers, long-term sellers, don't have all three of those required images. So we're gonna have to do some work getting that all filled in. Okay, any more any more big current news we want to hit, or we want to get into the meat of the topic here? Serve it up. Let's get into the meat of the topic here. Serve it up. So we're we're talking about uh, one of the big questions we get, and this is again to to restate we said earlier from new sellers either like new businesses or companies that were doing a lot of wholesale uh wholesale selling and now are moving to direct to consumer is um you know what is this fba versus fbm do i just do one or the other are there circumstances where one is better than the other um and there's a lot of confusion there so for anybody who's been selling on amazon for a while this is kind of 101 we'll get into some trickier topics uh in a few minutes here Quick recap. So FBA is fulfilled by manufacturer. Rachel, when do you tell people you should just absolutely go with FBA and don't even worry about FBM? Um, if it's a smaller item that's not going to be like a ton of space to ship or a ton of space to store, a ton of space to store, it's not going to be super expensive to ship, you know, like a pallet or something like that. And if it's an item that moves quickly, I think FBA is probably your best bet to get that moved wherever it needs to be economically. Yeah. And I just tell, I usually tell them FBA is your best bet as a default. And then there may be exceptions for FBM where it's better. Um, and you kind of hinted at some of those. Parker, where do you, because we have, we have partners who sell on both, right? So where do you try and draw the line? Is, is FBA your, like your default choice, Parker? Or is it more of a case by case FBA versus FBM shipping? Yeah, generally, I just like to start with FBA and FBM listings. And I might not even set the FBM listings live until FBA hits because I would just prefer to start off on the right foot and prime, easier conversions, all the good things. Uh, yeah. So let's unpack that for a second. You said FBA. And F- so you're talking a dual strategy, right? Where you're putting up for each ASIN you're putting up an FBA listing and an FBM version of that listing. And what's going to happen there is that, and this is something we, it's now become kind of best practices at Amazon on a lot of products to do. We started doing it six, seven years ago and we got in trouble for doing it because you weren't supposed to do that on Amazon. Um, But it worked and now it's become standard practice. Other people are doing it too. We didn't invent it, but um, it's now become kind of standard practice. And that has a couple advantages, right? You can take advantage of FBA's FBA converts better because people know they're going to get it in two days, um, and it's more dependable. And they, you know, you're going to you're going to win buy boxes more often if you're FBA. So FBA usually sells. I think Amazon stats were FBA versus FBM, all other things equal. The FBA will sell thirty five percent faster or will convert thirty five percent more frequently, which means your ad dollars go better. Customers are happier, everything else. So it's generally for a lot of things, we try to go to FBA first on that. Um, but we also have the FBM listing in the background as well. So if FBA runs out of stock, it automatically converts to an FBM listing. That's that gets the buy box. You don't run out of stock, people can still buy, right? It's a it's a backstop in most of those cases. Questions we get a lot of times. So objections we first get, because a lot of people I think go into this thinking that I already have a warehouse, I already do fulfillment. Why do I have to send stuff to Amazon? I can just fulfill myself, right? So the questions I get, uh, and then I'll throw them. It's well, let me let me be this. Rachel, uh, Rachel, you be the you be the 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 seller right now, and let me 
or I'll, I'll do the objection as the seller and you be the agency and say, here's why you should do it this other way. Okay. Okay. Put you on the spot. So I'm the seller. Wait, it's going to cost me a lot to have all this inventory sitting at Amazon. Why do I want to send it to Amazon? Uh, if it's going to sit somewhere, it should sit at Amazon where it can be moved quickly, be available to sell quickly. Yep. And it's going to sit somewhere. You're going to pay for it somewhere. You're going to pay for storage somewhere. So Amazon's actually cheaper sometimes than a lot of other solutions, unless you just have a lot of extra warehouse space. But yeah, you want to get it work to be fulfilled the fastest on that. Um, another one that I get a lot when we're onboarding new partners is it seems really dumb what you guys do to ship things all the way to Amazon just so Amazon can ship it to someone else. Why would I do that? Parker, what's your answer there? Yeah, that one's, that one's kind of silly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's usually not my response <laughs> first when people ask that, but yeah, I respond with that and a smile. And then we get into the, into the bigger topic of you pretty much save money in most scenarios and you get it off of your hands. You don't have to worry about every single order that comes in being at your fulfillment center to make sure that that gets shipped off and yeah, j- just give it to Amazon. Yeah, and that, that that's and that's great because yeah, you can get away with the calling it silly and smiling better than I do on that. So hats off to you for that. It's one of your strengths. Um, but on that, yeah, shipping to Amazon in bulk. What you what we find often is that when new uh, sellers are coming on board, they totally underestimate the time cost of fulfillment, and so they'll say, "Well, I can fulfill at almost the same cost as Amazon. Sure, Amazon might be a little cheaper, but I can get close to it and I can control it more." And what they don't realize is ship into bulk on Amazon, Amazon just takes every order. Um, and usually if somebody says, no, I want to start doing FBM because I want to control it all, what they realize fast is every single order coming in, somebody has to go package up, box up, and fulfill. And the hours and time and wages they're putting into that. And each one to ship, the actual postage costs more than the Amazon fulfillment fee does. And you're paying for all this time becomes just a giant hassle and they start to understand the difference on it. Um, but yeah, we find people frequently just don't, when they put their costs in, they don't put any internal cost for fulfillment of time of people in there at all. Um, and part of what you're paying for with Amazon fulfillment is is that, but it's still cheaper than shipping. So um, and often, in most cases, you know, where Rachel said, hey, the products are frequently ordered, they're not overly bulky, you're going to save money at the FBA. Um, I also get a, what if Amazon breaks and lose it? I like all the inventory in my own warehouse because we'll take care of it. I don't trust Amazon not to run over things with a forklift. Rachel, what do we say when that comes up? Well, it's going to happen. Amazon will break something or run it over with a forklift. They're going to lose it. They're going to do something. Uh, But we have the ability to file for reimbursement. Amazon will reimburse you to what they assume is your cost of goods. So not quite the selling price, but definitely more than half. Yeah, it's usually, and there's, um, again, we have lots of fights with Amazon all the time on things, but when they do reimburse us, in general, they're trying to assume what is the cost of goods and they usually assume higher than our actual cost of goods. So we don't, we don't lose on those. We actually come out okay, as long as we're spending the time tracking and getting the reimbursement for things because we've had things happen like a whole a whole carton of uh of lip balm gets dropped off the forklift and run over by the forklift and is now unusable it's smeared all over the floor right we've had those happen at amazon it's going to happen you just got to track your reimbursement to get it um what do we say parker when somebody says i don't want to pay amazon for storage fees that's another objection that comes up yeah in the grand scheme of things as long as you're doing what amazon wants you to do the storage fees aren't that high 
And in the long run, you're going to sell more product and it just makes more sense. Yeah, and it can depend. I mean, if you have a lot of big bulky products that don't move that fast, your storage fees can be significant. I mean, we, you know, we're working with one partner right now where it can get up to seven or eight or nine percent, right? And that gets kind of scary. Um, but on a lot of things we have that move well, where there's inventory doesn't sit that long, our Im- total inventory cost is like less than one percent. So it's not you're not spend you're not storage costs. So you're not spending a lot on that. Um, Again, with certain exceptions on products that may start to make more sense for FBM because they're big. And again, Amazon charges inventory costs by cubic feet. So size and bulk of items starts to matter in this. Um, and the scale can tilt more where it's, okay, now your storage costs are high if you have, again, slow moving because you pay by the month and you pay by the cubic foot. So if you have big bulk items that don't move that fast, that's where you can get big storage costs. Otherwise, if you're moving stuff fast and your products aren't huge and bulky, Amazon's going to be pretty cheap storage most of the time. Um, and the other objection before we move on to this, because we're beating it into the ground, is um, I get a lot from new partners of, I don't want to pay Amazon's referral fees, so I'll just ship it myself. Rachel, what's the answer to that one? Then don't be on Amazon. You're going to pay those <laughs> regardless of whether or not you're on FBA, FBM, hybrid. Yeah, it doesn't Whatever change. you choose to do through Amazon. Right. Because you ship yourself, Amazon's still going to charge their referral fee and still going to take their cut. That's not going to change. Um, so a lot of there's a lot of a lot of objections we usually have to kind of talk through, and these are all good. You know, people just trying to manage their business, right? Um, so when we kind of hinted at it, but when is FBM better? Rachel or Parker, who wants to take this first? Because there are circumstances where FBM can be the better solution, fulfilled by manufacturer can be the better solution. Yeah, it comes down to bulkiness kind of like you were referring to to where you might want to have a little bit at FBA a little bit of FBA a little bit of FBM and then also depending on like seasonality and generally you like to stock up so that Amazon can push that themselves through FBA but then also being ready to switch over to FBM just depending on the supply and demand of well 90% of the country just got snow and ice or you know any other thing that's going on around there. Yeah, or it's Christmas out. And, and one of the dangers with FBA is on highly seasonal items, right? We're dealing with some of these. We've been dealing with some of these. Is It's a highly seasonal item. You stock up. You don't know what the demand spike is going to look like. And after the big demand spike is gone, you could have inventory sitting at the FBA. And then you have to make a call of what kind of pain do you want? Do you want the pain of paying long-term inventory storage because it's going to sit? Or do you want the pain of removing those products or destroying them? So that there is a danger on FBA of overstocking on stuff that's going to have a big spike, but then not move after the spike. And, and there's certainly seasonal products that match that. So that is, that is one of the dangers. That's one, like Parker, you're personally working through one of those with one of our, our favorite partners right now, right? Which we think we're kind of at the end of the problem on that one. Of course, of course. And otherwise, there are a few products out there, depending on their hazmat or what Amazon rates them as, if they have batteries or depending on what the liquid is to where you may be forced to ship FBM. Amazon may not allow you to ship FBA because they're like, we don't want to deal with this. Yeah, so it could have dangerous materials in it, could have batteries, and there's, there's certain things where you might be required to be FBM on that, absolutely. If you're on FBM, well, the other things, and, and I think in the notes here, you know, multiple items sometimes need to be FBM because Amazon won't take items into their fulfillment centers. Melt it after. For a portion of the year. We have some- For a portion of the year, yeah. Yeah, we've had a few clients where their items are FBA, you know, October through April and then May through September. 
they are FBM. Yes, absolutely on that. Um, if you're FBM, there's some rules you got to follow on this, right? Um, uh, because Amazon wants you to hold their standards if you're FBM because any, any, anything goes wrong reflects on them, right? Rachel, do you want to roll through what the FBM, like what the rules are for FBM that you must do? Sure. Uh, to do FBM and be able to stay doing FBM, you have to ship on time every time. So you can't, Amazon will give you a certain amount of time to ship your items out. That's kind of how they base their um, estimated arrival date for customers. Um, so you got to ship on time every time, no late shipments. And then you also have to use a shipping service fast enough to get to the seller by the time Amazon has promised them. So no going for like the super cheap shipping option that, you know, only costs you $2, but it's going to get to the customer in like four weeks. You got to get it to them in a reasonable amount of time. And this is usually pretty easily done. Um, you can purchase shipping through Amazon that's as cheap really as you're going to get it through any provider. And then no canceling your orders. So if you get an order, you have to fulfill it. You can't just be like, no, I don't feel like it. Or, you know, you got to be aware of the amount of inventory you have so that you're not selling inventory that you don't have in your possession. Yes. Um, and then also be smart about how you're shipping your items. Don't ship them so that they get to the customer and they're busted because you didn't put enough packing. That's bad. Yes. So all those, and Amazon's not very forgiving on those because the rate, the failure rate is really low. If you late ship, it's, it's, um, it's a really low percentage. You can have one or two here or there, but if you have many and you're, and you have any significant kind of late shipments, you can be, and we've worked with one of our partners who got banned from shipping FBM for three months um, because they, and they were actually shipping on time. So the other thing in there is when you do ship FBM, you have to report back to Amazon. Here's the tracking code that we, on the shipment, you have to make sure that gets back up to them. And if you don't, because the, the incident that this partner had trouble with was they actually shipped on time, but the tracking number did not get re-uploaded back to Amazon. And if Amazon doesn't need the tracking number, they're going to assume you didn't get it shipped and they're going to penalize you for it. So there's a lot of steps that you have to watch out for. And Amazon, if it thinks you are not shipping correctly, won't hesitate to shut you down for a while. So if you're going to take on FBM yourself, you have to be highly vigilant on it, right? Um, we were going to talk a lot about hybrid FBA and FBM, but we kind of talked about that already. It's, it's more of a way of do a version of each for your listings if you have the capability to ship yourself as well. And usually that's the backstop. The FBM is the backstop. The FBA is what consumers are going to see. Um, Parker, anything else on that, on how to use that? It's, it's again, it's not what we see a ton of sellers doing, but everything we touch we automatically kind of move to a hybrid FBA, FBM on most types of products. One thing that you need to be aware of is even if you're fully stocked at FBA, Amazon can still receive FBM orders. And this can be just the customer wanting to purchase from you, whether they're going over to the right on the buy box and selecting that they want to purchase it from the manufacturer rather than Amazon. It could be that in your specific location with your shipping address, that FBM will actually get there faster. So Amazon's trying to provide you a better service. And so you just don't want to sleep even when you send in FBA. 
And then the way to avoid that is if you're just like, I don't want to deal with this at all, would just be to turn off FBM. Yeah. And you can turn it off. You can turn off FBM by going on vacation mode, right, Rachel, on that? So Amazon has that feature. And vacation mode just says, I'm not going to fulfill FBM orders, so don't offer them right now. You can do that. You can zero out, zero out individual listings. We have a bunch of different options that you can do to not accept FBM inventory. You have to watch for those and you have to be careful. And yeah, to that point, you, 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 if you're going to have FBM in a dual thing, you have to be checking them all the time uh, and make sure you don't fall off on that. And the one thing that, that usually where that comes in, and we mentioned the canceled orders, is if you're going to do FBM, you have to make sure your inventory is accurate on Amazon. So you don't get a sale for something that you don't have. The other thing there uh, was, and Parker, you were saying you can still sell FBM even if you're in a hybrid. People might still come into the FBM. And we found a couple of times, this was our own mistake, was that uh, some of the FBM SKUs um, were in the ad campaigns. And so people clicked on an ad that had an FBM SKU and just bought the FBM version. And all of a sudden we have an order coming up that if we weren't watching for daily, would have turned into a late and got us a penalty. So um, we're also vigilant to make sure that, hey, if, we have, if we're fully stocked, let's take the FBM SKUs out of the campaign so we can just have everything that people see the FBA. Real quickly to close this off to one last topic, and that's on remote FBA. And remote FBA, again, some sellers are familiar with it, but most that we encounter are not that familiar with it. They know about it, but they haven't done it. Remote FBA allows you to try out and enter some of the international markets. For example, if you are on Amazon US, you can very easily start selling on Amazon Canada or Amazon Mexico or on a lot of accounts this week, Amazon Brazil got automatically added as a remote FBA if you're selling in the US. And the background behind that, if you're not familiar with it, it allows you to just ship an inventory to your US fulfillment centers like you normally would but then list your products on Mexico or Canada. And if people order from there, Amazon's going to charge you a fulfillment rate and it's fairly high, but they can't order there. and You can reflect that fulfillment rate in your pricing. So you can at least make products available there. If you want to get serious about being in Canada or Mexico marketplaces, then you're going to want to ship product across the border and into those marketplaces. But if you want to dabble in them and test them out or at least make your products available, Amazon Remote FBA is an option there. And we're actually implementing that in a lot of partners because it's not giant sales, but it's enough sales to matter and enough sales to be incremental in a meaningful way. Rachel, what was our one big learning we did on pricing though? Because pricing works very differently when you're pricing products in Mexico and Canada. And, and, and this relates to in the US, you always try and have, especially US when you're doing FBA, you don't show a separate shipping charge. All your shipping and everything is baked into your frontline price. And that's what consumers just see a frontline price and free shipping. In Canada and Mexico, Rachel, what did we learn and how that's different? Uh, mostly in Mexico, it's much more common for remote FBA items to have shipping charges. So the default when we were setting these listings up is that or when we were setting these listings up in Amazon Mexico was that they already had shipping charges on them. Uh, Amazon set up a default template or had a default template saved. And then they just converted our uh, selling price into pesos. So we had to adjust our price to reflect that because 
when the U.S. price, which includes fulfillment fees, converted, when the U.S. price was converted to pesos, uh, it was much higher. We, were, we weren't going to get the buy box. We weren't going to get sales off of that. So what we learned, and if we try and bake in all the costs and do it, here's your cost and shipping's free. Our frontline price is really high. And if there's, and we learned there's any third parties on our listing, what they're doing is listing a lower frontline price and then adding shipping and they're winning the buy box um, because the fulfillment fee is not, for fulfilling remote FBA is not cheap. Uh, and so the standard practice is, and, and what, what Rachel referenced, Amazon gives you a template that says, that basically is, if you were doing domestic shipping, here's what the charge would be. And here's what most other sellers are going to put on their listing as here's the charge for shipping. And then we're separately going to charge you a remote FBA fulfillment fee. And that's usually going to be a lot higher, like double what the domestic shipping would be. And so your math for pricing has to take all that into account of, hey, we're going to have to pay this pretty high fulfillment fee. We're going to cover part of that, not all of it probably, by charging extra shipping on top of our price. And then you also have to look at what third parties are also charging for shipping because Amazon customers in Mexico kind of know what certain things should cost for shipping. And if you put that shipping number way too high, they're going to call you on it. Um, but that became, it became more complex to figure out how to price stuff in Mexico because of that math, like that, that, those gyrations we were having to go through there. Parker, you set a lot of F, remote FBA up as well. What are, the, what are the watch outs people should be looking out for in that? So there's an additional fee to your account when you sign up. And so when you're going to test or when you've committed to it, go all in. Like, make sure your listings look good, make sure your pricing's effective, and then get advertising campaigns up. And don't just kind of like throw up FBA remote and not check on it for a month because you're gonna continually get charged that new monthly fee. Plus, you're not giving it your all, so you don't know what's there. There are some products that really sell well in Canada and Mexico comparatively, and then others that just don't hit. And uh, I think it's worth testing for all products because you never know until you try it. But a couple things to keep an eye out for. Yeah. And that monthly fee you're talking about is the subscription fee, right? So you get charged correct a new subscription fee for Canada or for Mexico. Um, and this one, yeah, don't be wishy-washy. If you're going to go for it, go for it. Put it on there. You don't have to put a ton of advertising either, but put a little bit to see how it does usually is what we advise on that. Um, but if you just put it on there, uh, if you put your products live on there, what you might find is every month you're just getting charged subscription fees and you're not selling anything because you're not, you have a bunch of products that have no rank because they haven't sold and you're not launching them and all you're doing is kind of eating a monthly subscription fee, which isn't super high, but why eat that every month um, if, you don't, if you don't have to, if you're not selling anything? And depending on your brand, you may find that third-party sellers are already offering your products in these marketplaces. And our general rule of thumb is if you're seeing it there, I would like to represent our brand on that platform instead so that we can provide better customer service, make sure all the listings are up to date. Uh, they're utilizing the proper UPCs and all that. So you may, you may take a look for that too and then make your decision. Yeah, it's the standard of if our brand's being represented, we want to represent it correctly in the way we want. And if you let third parties run the show, they're going to represent it however they want, which is not, not in your best interest usually. Um, and so we want to control that. And we also don't want future issues of somebody using a different UPC. So we try and expand the product into a different channel 
there's UPC conflicts or everything else. So we want to get that all cleaned up. Um, but again, to your point, like put a little sport behind it. You don't have to go full in and like spend bet the farm on it, but you want to put a little sport behind it, be serious about it. And we also like to knock out the third parties there because we can usually underprice them, but we want to look at their pricing, see what they're doing, and then try and come in under them. And a lot of times where we've, because we put a lot of efforts on the US side, when we see a lot of third parties are trying to kind of knock them out of the market and control the channel because we can make more money for our partners if we control the channel. Um, Oftentimes, what we'll find out is those sellers that we find on Mexico or Canada because we weren't there right away, they came there because we knocked them off the U.S. and they couldn't beat us on buy box in the U.S. And so they moved to Canada or Mexico to try and move their product. And so now we're fighting. Now we're kind of coming into the same folks um, and we're fighting them off there too. It's, it's a lot of the, it's usually names we recognize <laughs> when we're doing that, when we come in. But we'll also find things of really wacky copy or photos being used that we don't feel are good for the brand and we have to get control of the listings and take those over and get those fixed. All part of representing your brand well. Great. I think we'll cut this podcast off here before we run way too long on this. Um, any last thoughts, Rachel or Parker, on these kind of base fulfillment issues here? I think we hit them. Okay. Good. So we did a podcast. Hooray for us. Um, and uh, as a reminder, um, next week's podcast is going to be our January 2024 top e-commerce news and stories recap. We do this every month at, once the month is over. So we'll be doing that for our next podcast recording, which will be episode 73. But thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have any questions or feedback or episode ideas or think you might want to be a guest, hit us up at roar at ecomasaurus.com. That's R-A-W-R, think dinosaur sounds, at ecomasaurus.com. And if you're a small to medium-sized brand owner that needs help growing your e-commerce sales channels, you can find us at 50poundboson.com. That's 50-P-O-U-N-D-B-O-S-O-N.com. Rachel and Parker, thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Shelby, for producing. And we'll see everybody next week. 